Okay, sorry, we had a lot of technical difficulties getting it working, and I'm sorry if it has cut out on you the past couple weeks on the live feed, and then we it didn't post, so hopefully we got it right this week, and everything will be good. All right, let's start with a prayer. Dear Lord, uh, thankful that we can gather together and that we can be together um, via all the technology and uh, that the, your word can go out to everybody and that um, they're able to hear it even though they can't be here. Uh, we pray for everyone's health, um, for those that are down and out, that they will be able to get back at it and we can return back to normal and uh, back to doing your work again. And bless this lesson tonight and help us to learn a lot from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are doing Abraham. And we have been doing it for a couple weeks now. And um, he is the father of all of the Hebrews and later to be called the Jews. He is really the father um, of, the, of our faith, Christianity. Um, and more specifically, the father of the Jewish faith. And <clears throat> he's also... Uh, side note, he is the father also of the Islamic faith because um, Ishmael, who you will meet later, um, is a descendant of his, and that is who all of the Arabs are descended from. So just a, a tidbit there that he is a very important historical figure that is famous around the world, but we are looking more specifically at uh, at certain at events in his life that are recorded in the Bible to find out more about his faith and how he lived his life and how he was a friend of God. So he was, we're not going to draw on the map tonight because it's not going to be that important, but he was born in the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia and grew up and lived most of his life in the city of Ur until he was called by God. God came to him and told him that he needed to abandon his family and culture and uh, their flawed religion and follow after God. And Abram is given three promises then by God uh, that he will be the father of a great nation, that he will... Um, be blessed, and that get you get more information about all the different blessings that he will receive, and that um, he will be given a land, which we later know as promised land. And these are um, promises that both have a physical, um, a physical reward on this earth for him and his descendants, but they are also spiritual blessings that you too can inherit today. And um, these are going to be further fleshed out as we go along. Uh, we find out that he is going to have as many descendants as uh, grains of sand or as the dust on the earth. And we find out that he's going to inherit the, the land of Canaan. That's what's going to be his promised land. And as we see him, he is called to be constantly moving and traveling all over the land of Canaan. He lives in a tent. He lives a nomadic lifestyle. And... Because of that, because of the nature of the promises and how God calls him to follow after him, he starts out not knowing where, how, or when any of these promises will be um, enacted for him. But what he does know is he knows enough of the what. He knows what God has promised or enough of it, and that is enough for him to have the faith in God that he has. Um, so, after some time of wandering around in Canaan, in the land, what will be the land of Israel, he, a famine comes on the land that's a pretty bad one, and there's no food, uh, no grass for his, 
his flocks to eat. So he goes down to Egypt. And when he arrives in Egypt, um, he strays a bit from God in that he doesn't trust God to keep him and his wife safe in their marriage uh, intact. He thinks Pharaoh's going to steal Sarah from him, or Sarai at the time. And he lies and says that he, she is his sister, which um, eventually Pharaoh finds out because plagues are put upon him, which is, um, this is almost a mini picture of what is going to happen in the future to his, his family that at that time will finally be a nation um, when the Israelites are in Egypt and um, because they are being mistreated that God will send plagues on upon Egypt and then the Egyptians will send them out and give them wealth and just to get them to leave the land. And the same thing happens to Abram where Pharaoh gives him wealth when he leaves as well. And Pharaoh kind of pushes him out of Egypt the same way that Pharaoh at the time of Moses will push the Israelites out. So just another little picture, a prophecy of what is to come. Um, so after he leaves Egypt, he realigns himself with God. He goes back to Bethel where he first sacrificed to God in Canaan and he gets himself back on track and in line with God. Um, so all this time he is building his faith in God through all these events that happen. And the next thing that comes along, remember what happened next? Yes, Lot um, is his nephew and has been living with Abraham this whole time and traveling along with him. And what's the issue that arises? Yeah, they have problems because there's not enough food for all the animals and the herdsmen are arguing. So Abraham says, well, let's split up. And Lot chooses... Um, when Abraham gives him first choice of what land to choose, Lot chooses the nice green land that has a problem of sin and um, like sexual immorality. Yes, there is a city there that is um, lives very different from how God is calling them to live. And there'll be more to come about that, but there's a there is an immediate cost within the first ten to five years of Lot living there. Was Lot at first started just with his tent outside of the city, facing towards it, watching it, and within a few years he is living inside of the city. And the problem is, is that there's some warring kingdoms, and Lot is taken away in a battle, and Abraham. Um, finds out about it, goes and rescues Lot, defeats this other army that took all of Sodom captive, brings everybody back, and we get a interesting but important um, foreshadowing of somebody. Who do we meet after um, Abraham wins the battle and is on his way home? Yep, Melchizedek or Melchizedek, uh, either's okay. Um, and he is, what is he? A king and a priest. Yes, he is a king and a priest, which is unique in the Bible. Why? They don't go along because the Levites aren't supposed to own land and they were priests. Okay, yes, because in after this point, and with all the Hebrews, um, there never were any priests that were also, also kings and no kings that were allowed to perform priestly duties. They were separated. And, um, and they were also imperfect because they were all men. Where Although Melchizedek is a, actually a man and has parents and does die at some point. He is a picture because nobody knows where he came from or where he's going. And that's just like Jesus, where Jesus is the perfect, our perfect priest, our high priest, the, and the sacrifice. And he is also our king, having defeated death 
and he always was and always will be. So we looked at how that's a perfect picture of things to come. And David in a psalm talks about uh, Melchizedek in Psalm 110. And then also Hebrews chapters 7, 8, and I believe 9 talk explain what we talked about with Melchizedek being a picture of Jesus. Okay, so tonight we are going to look at chapter 15 of Genesis. And we see Abram um, now is going to... Um, have another encounter with God. And that, that's really what Abraham's life is full of, more so than most people in the Bible. That he, the amount of interaction that he has with God, and this is why he is called um, God's friend. That's what he, his title is, if you were to call it that. The friend of God. So let's see what God has to say to him now. We're going to read chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Okay, so we see Abram is feeling concern. He's unsure of the future of God's promise. Um, he, his faith is being battered within. Uh, maybe you've experienced this before where you are having unease about a situation in your life or what you are supposed to be doing, um, feeling lost, feeling like you're not getting anywhere, maybe that you're just uh, running in place. And... God knows that he's feeling this way and comes to him in a vision. And he says, firstly, don't fear, but remember that I am your protector and your reward. Um, so he is telling him that if you look at the words that he uses, he says, I'm your shield and then I am your reward. And he has quite literally been Abraham's shield. And last week we saw that he was victorious in a battle with not a lot of guys up against a, a large army and comes away from that victorious. Uh, we've sealed that he's been his literal shield in Egypt, shielding his family despite his mistakes. Um, and I'm sure many other times in his life. And he has seen some rewards from that. He was blessed in Egypt. He's been blessed with victory on the battle, blessed by Melchizedek after his battle. And he, God says this, and he says to remember those things. Remember these promises and how I have fulfilled them. And there's a song that we sing. We've actually sung it. Um, quite a bit the past couple months in church. Um, Come thou fount of every blessing. And there is the second verse in that says, here I, ra um, here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. So, Ebenezer. know what Ebenezer is. What in the world is that song talking about? It's a very, the, the song says a whole lot with not a lot of words. There's a lot of songs that have tons of words in them. They're very deep, big words, lots of things. This song has, it can't have more than 35 words in the whole song. Doesn't take, but it says a lot with its references. And this is a very smart one. And I'm 90% sure, yes, our hymnal, the red one that we're using has Ebenezer in it. I have a hymnal at home that does not have Ebenezer. It says, instead it says, here I raise to thee an altar, hither by thy help I'm come. So instead it says altar. Which, that's okay. 
it's it's still good because um, oftentimes in the Bible when somebody goes and builds an altar to God, a lot of times they're doing it to offer thanks. It's not the only reason. There's a lot of reasons to approach God, but that is one of the reasons. Um, the second part is probably easy to figure out. You have hither... So the second part that it means that I I've gotten this far because of thy help. Ebenezer refers to in um, in the book of I did not look this up, but because I knew it off the top of my head, pretty sure it's in the book of Joshua. But it is it's jo- what Joshua does when they cross the Jordan River finally into the promised land that Abraham has, was, is promised here now, when they get there, he takes this big rock that's the ground takes a big rock and he stands it up so it's standing up out of the ground And he names that rock Ebenezer. With all the Israelites, the millions, standing there. And he says this because Ebenezer means um, that they are remembering. It's a mark of remembrance. So he's saying, and when he does this, it's a whole ceremony saying, we have come this far We have gotten from Egypt, we've gone through the desert, we've defeated Jericho, we've crossed the Jordan River, and this is the beginning of the promised land where we have a whole lot of work ahead of us to do, and we are unsure, we do not know what's going to happen. We have a lot of battles to fight because we have to take all these evil people out of the land. He says, but we remember that God helped us. That's why we are where we are now. We remember all those times that he helped us. So in that song, it's saying, here I raise my Ebenezer, or I raise my own rock, where I say, God has helped me this far, and he's going to keep helping me. So they put that by a pathway, in a main pathway in Israel. And many, many years, anytime anyone went by it, they said, that's right, God has helped us this far, and he will keep helping us. So, I say all that because this is essentially what God is saying to Abraham. He says, remember all those times I've already helped you. You don't need to be afraid because I've already proven that I have fulfilled some of my promises thus far. So, he starts off with that, gives him a reason not to fear. But Abraham, I'm sure, because the Lord because of what he says next, he still feels, um, he feels that despite all of that, that the tasks ahead, the things that God has promised, that there's an insurmountable wall between him and those promises. So we have Abram here. And we have God's promises. Get another color. He says there's this big wall between that I don't know how you're going to get rid of it so your promises can come through. I don't know how that's going to happen. And just as we try to do, he starts to think about these ways that God might do it. Says, oh, well, maybe, maybe I'll do it this way. And maybe I can help make that happen. And this isn't to say that you shouldn't be always looking for how to fulfill God's will in your life and how to do it. But it is more, much more important 
to look for God's way, look for the opportunities that he brings about than to try to make something fit into a little box that you have for how God works. Because Abraham says, well, problem here is I'm 80 and my wife is 80 and we have not been able to have children the whole time we've been married, which is many, many years. We can't have children. It doesn't work for us. And he starts to try to find a way for God to how God's going to do this. And you'll see this will be a stumbling block for Abraham later. But he says, well, God, I was thinking about I've got this really good servant. He's my top guy. He oversees all of my herds. He's my right-hand guy, and his name's Eliezer. And, you know, if I don't have any children, which not looking like it, he could be my heir, and you could fulfill all the promises through him. Well, let's see what God has to say about that. Verse uh, 4 through 6 now, chapter 15. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This is not thine heir, but he that shall over that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. Oh, and tell... This, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. So, um, I guess we really haven't talked about what an heir is, um, just in case you don't know. So an heir, H-E-I-R, not A-I-R, is um, the person who's going to inherit something. And so if you are, if, if when your parents die, whatever they have, unless they've written a will where they're going to give it to somebody else, <laughs> Whatever they own will belong to you. And even um, some of their debts you might get. Like, if they didn't pay property taxes on something, if you want to keep that property, you'll have to pay the property taxes. So you are an heir to whatever belongings they have. You'll get, if they have a house, you'll get their house. If you have a car, you'll get their car. If they have a popcorn maker you will get your, their popcorn maker you get everything that is theirs legally it belongs to you so um, the heir Abraham is looking for an heir because the problem is he has no children and you, you can have an heir and it's what you do in our culture is you write a will you have a legal document that says, when I die, so-and-so is going to get my land, or so-and-so is going to get my car, so-and-so is going to get everything that's in my bank account, or whatever it might be. And you can split it up however you want. And Abraham's, in that time, your wealth would go to your firstborn son, and <clears throat> then your... They would get, sometimes it would work that they would get half of it, and then the rest of the other half would be split among the other children. Sometimes it worked that the oldest son got everything. And Abraham says, I have no heir for you to give these blessings to, as you've promised. And God says to him that, You don't really understand my promise, Abraham. He says, that it, he says, no, Eliezer is not going to be your heir. You will 
have a son that is your own son, that is your blood, that I will uh, pass these promises on down to him. And he says, if you want to know what your future family is going to look like, I want you to go out tonight and look at the stars. And you tell me how many there are. And, of course, Abraham doesn't even have to go out that night and try to count them. He says, well, I can't, I, I can't count them. He says, yeah, that, that's how many grandchildren and great-grandchildren and descendants you will have. More than can be counted. So, after this, after he gets that little picture and that reassurance, says that this um, faith is counted unto him as righteousness. So, he believes what God says but it's not we're not done there let's go on to verse 7 and 8 now and he um, and he that is Abraham said unto him or sorry God said unto him I am the Lord that brought thee out of the Ur of the Chaldees to give this land to inherit it and he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? So Abraham's still a little unsure. And it, I have to ask you, have you ever wanted to believe something, but you, don't, you just don't know how to have that belief. You just don't have the feelings that go along with that knowledge that you have where you say, uh, everything makes sense. I want to believe it, but it just I just don't have that feeling. In your mind, you've chosen to believe, to not doubt or to be afraid, but your heart still resists. It's not convinced. And this is Abraham's predicament. And he, he just, he does now what he has to do. He just has to. He says, how can I know? God, I need you to show me something so I can believe without any reservations. I want to be all in. But I just, I need a little something. And... Now, God is going to, will now do something that is incredibly powerful. In fact, later, I'm sure you've heard of this before. If not, sorry. But later, there's a later, the, is the sacrifice of Isaac, his son, when Abraham has his son. This sacrifice will mean, means little and is really so strange and it it doesn't even make sense it people look at it and they don't get it they think god is terrible he's horrible he's evil he's um unmerciful he has no heart but it only seems that way if you don't know and understand this next part in chapter 15. <clears throat> and, well, let's just go ahead and read it now. This is a little bit longer section. Um, in chapter 15, now verse 9 through 18. And he said unto him, Take me a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he, Abraham, took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece, one against another, but the birds he divided not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, 
Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve, I will judge, or will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And here's, here's the, the real important part here. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those, those pieces. In the same... Oh, we'll stop there. Okay. So... This is one of the strangest, most mysterious passages probably in the whole Bible, excluding prophecies, like weird dreams and prophecies. This is one of the strangest things that happens, that actually physically happens. And you have maybe never even learned of this story. It's pretty obscure. Not talked about a lot. So what is happening here is that God has told Abraham to prepare a covenant ceremony. And what this is, this is not some weird, odd thing or some magical spell, but God has Abraham get a ox a ram, a, I think it was a goat. Yep, and a, a goat. Oh. And then a turtle dove and a pigeon. These, the three mammals, he has him take them and divide them in, in half, split them down the middle. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever butchered an animal, animal or even... I'll go, I'll go as civilized as cutting up a turkey, like a, a turkey on Thanksgiving. will give you a bit of an idea. If you've ever tried to cut the like the leg off of a turkey and it didn't come off easy. Have you ever tried that? Okay. Well, if you've ever hunted and you've had to gut an animal, you have a more, even more of an idea of what it's like to, to cut up an animal, to butcher something. Well, Abraham is told to take these and cut them in half. So from the head to the tail, he's going to cut them in half, break the bone joints apart, split it right down the middle. Okay, And he takes the, there's an ox, sorry for bad drawings. They're all cut up anyways, right? So he puts the animals on either side. There's a ram. It's hard to draw a mirror image of things. And then we got a goat. And then, it doesn't say where he puts the doves. Well, you have them on either side, like that, with like a pathway down the middle. And this is something very specific that you notice all that God told him to do was to go get these. Doesn't, didn't, he didn't even tell them to divide them up, God didn't, because... Abraham knew exactly what this was, what needed to be done, because 
in those times he would have been very familiar with this. This was a what would have been called a covenant ceremony or a covenant contract, which that's really what covenant means. It means a contract between two people. And what they did then was after they divided these animals up, the normal covenant ceremony would be between two parties. Either it would be a servant and their master or think of like um, even like medieval times like a, a serf and the king of the castle. Um, that type of a thing. A, the ruler and the um, what do you call that people who are ruled over subjects. subjects yes the ruler and the subjects that's what I was looking for and it would either be that or it could be two people who are equal on an equal level and what would happen was that the person making the promise they would go after they agreed on the terms and they would walk down the middle between these animals that are cut in half. And this was to symbolize what would happen to them if they did not fulfill the promise. So really serious stuff here, okay? It's bloody, it is, it is like old world barbaric, like real nitty gritty down to earth like as raw as you can get. And Abraham sets this up. And he knows exactly what to do. And he sits and he waits for God to arrive for the contract to happen. Just like if you were to set up a time to meet with your lawyer to do some paperwork. Just in a more bloody, textual, real, really make you want to fulfill the contract, right? No backing out, no taking to somebody to court afterwards. And he sits there and he waits all day for God to arrive for, so that he can make his promise to God and walk down the middle. All day, he beats off the vultures and whatever hawks come and try to eat the animal Scares him away out in the hot sun and he waits. Finally, as the sun is setting, darkness comes. But it's a sudden darkness, not the sun actually setting. The sun hasn't set yet. It's a sudden darkness that comes and envelops him. It's an unnatural darkness. And this one is God's veil of himself. He is hiding his full glory. But notice in verse um, 10, no, verse 12, that it's a horror of a great darkness. And if you look at all the people who saw God, that they all fell down afraid, that they were terrified when they saw God. Because, and it's not that he is an evil guy. Obviously, we know that he is all good. All good comes from God. And it's it's not a that he rules with a reign of terror, but that you are in awe of his power. That you, you no one can stand on two feet in front of him. So Abraham feels his presence in that that sense of the power there. And then God speaks the promise to him. And this promise here, uh, you read it, and it should, you should say, oh, that is when Joseph goes to Egypt, all the family follows him there, and eventually they are enslaved until Moses comes, sets them free, and brings them to the promised land. That is the promise that he says here. But... This is, this is more than that. This is a promise. This is um, a, a covenant between them for 
every single interaction that they have for the rest of time. This is an all-encompassing of Abraham's whole life, this contract is about. And then uh, a really strange thing happens is there is a smoking furnace and a lamp of fire appear floating and they move between the two animals down the path. So it's dark, pitch dark, all of a sudden Moses can see, I don't even know what it would look like, but a smoking furnace and then I'm just going to draw an oil lamp because I don't know what else they'd have. But some kind of lamp of fire and that might not even be what they look like. We've talked about things when you see things of God that you describe them the best you can, but that might not be what it literally is. And these two things float down the middle. Not Abraham. He just watches. Now, I can assure you that the emotions when this happens flood over Abraham like the Niagara Falls. Just gushing, unstoppable waves of shock, waves of gratitude, joy, unworthiness. And you should be wondering right now, why? Or how do you know that? That's what you should be wondering right now. Because it doesn't say that anywhere in there. Well... When this ceremony is done, typically every other one Abraham's been at or seen, the master is never making a promise. It is always the servant who walks down the path every time. The master never walks down. The king never walks down between those divided animals. He's never the one who puts his neck on the line. It's always the peon who has to say, well, if I don't keep this promise or if the king doesn't keep his, his end of the deal, whatever goes south, it's my head on the, on the line. Abraham was ready to walk through the ripped and bloody animals to show that he was committed to the very end of their contract. That he was so committed that it would be his head if God didn't keep up his end of the deal. As well as if Abraham didn't keep up his end of the deal. And Abraham doesn't even know. Remember, he doesn't know all the who, what, why, where. Well, he knows a little bit of the what. But he doesn't know when. He doesn't know any of these things. He's taking God's word in some of the, he's raised a bit of a Ebenezer, just a small little one for what's happened, but he doesn't even know all that God's going to do. Instead though, in an unseen turn of events, God in his acting says of walking, of passing through those as a flame and as a pillar of smoke, he says, if this covenant is broken, I will be torn in pieces and my blood will be spilt on the ground. So that means not only is that um, if God did not keep his end, but if Abraham doesn't keep up his end of the bargain, the consequences will fall on God. He's taking both of their, both of the consequences. And of course we know God's going to fulfill his. But equally we can be sure that Abraham, his descendants, us, 
spiritually his descendants are not going to hold up that end of the bargain. And this isn't this isn't like other things in the Bible where it's just a picture of what's going to happen. We saw a picture of Melchizedek, that he's an example of what's going to happen. This is not just a picture. This is a contract that God made with us thousands of years ago with Abraham speaking for all of us saying, if you fail, if you mess up, I will take, I will bear the brunt of that. That I will go, I will die on a cross for you. I will allow myself to be torn in two for my blood to be spilt out, even if you mess up this promise. Because we're totally incapable of doing that. So, now you see why Abraham had a flood of emotions. Because this was real. This was powerful to him. We, we have things that we do as a culture that are maybe not quite as graphic as this. But we have things that are meaningful to us. We have... We have wedding ceremonies. We have funerals. We have, um, we have birthday parties. We have uh, graduation ceremonies. We have all these ceremonies that people feel tons of emotion at them. Different people at different times in their lives feel more or less. Well, that's the kind of emotion that Abraham brings to this. And then he sees something more amazing, more powerful than anybody's ever done at one of these ceremonies. Where God, the master, the all-powerful, says, I'll take all the consequences. He does, he takes the servant's place. As Jesus takes a servant's place throughout his life. And calls us to do as well. So... The question is, do you want a part of that covenant? And people today, you hear this all the time. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's been at different times in history more prevalent than others, but since the 1960s, it's been pretty popular to say and more and more so, I'm spiritual but not religious. A lot of Christians will say, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Well, I'll tell you, that is weak sauce. That is, it's pretty, and here's why. Here's why. Because if you say, um, If you say that you just want to be spiritual and not religious, it is like saying, I want all of the good things from God without any commitment. I don't want to have to hold up any end of a deal, which is the total opposite of what a covenant is. And you'll say, well, that's the Old Testament. Well, Jesus talks about a new covenant. Paul talks about a new covenant. And that new covenant is exactly what happens here. This is, this is God's promise of a new covenant that is to come. Because Abraham, God, Jesus hadn't died for the sins yet. But it said his faith was counted righteousness. Because he believed in this forthcoming new covenant that was to come. He saw that covenant promise there made. And this is, this is what a covenant is. A covenant is, I will do what I should, even if you don't. The closest thing that we have to these covenants today is probably um, the best picture probably always was, but is marriage. And when you go and if one day you get married, when you say that in sickness and health and poorness and in riches, all that, all those things, whatever vows you choose, whether it's the traditional or something else, the root of it all is 
I am going to love you. I'm going to stick by you no matter what you do. That's how it works. It, and that's what a covenant is. Because God said, I'm going to do these promises no matter what you do, Abraham. I know you're going to fail, but I'll take those consequences. And that's, that's what's even better is that God is the only one who can carry both sides. As long as the other is still willing to make that commitment, he's the only one that can carry both burdens. Um, in the end, God wants to be married to us. He talks all the time about, in the New Testament, how the church is his bride. He wants... To be, to be allowed to make that covenant with you. That's what he wants most. He knows you're going to make mistakes. He knows you're going to fail. And he's ready for that. He's already shown that he is committed to that. He's done it for many others. And he calls you to. He wants you to make that covenant with him. Because he can't force you to make that covenant. And it's interesting because throughout the Bible and there seems to be contradicting points and it's still people divide, uh, whole um, denominations have been developed because of this. That people say, no, it's all about mercy, that God is totally merciful that he forgives everything. And other people say, no, you can't just go around and do whatever you want. You are responsible for your actions. You have a commitment. And the fact of the matter is that it's both. Wherever you draw that line, wherever you think your line is, wherever you are convicted by, in the end, the line is just that you make that covenant with God. That you say, I want to follow you. I accept you as my Savior on the other side of that covenant. I accept you to stand by me at the altar. That we're going to be paired together. Even if I fail every single time, I'm still committing to you to help me with those burdens where I fail. All right, and next week we are going to go on to chapter 16 and continue to look at Aram's life. Thank you.